let's take a moment and go to our God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we, we thank you this morning for the gift of being able to draw near. So we ask that your spirit would, would be at work in our hearts as we do so. Um, Lord, we pray that he would prepare us, that we would get to hear from you, and that ultimately, Lord, we would behold Jesus. That's in his great name we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, uh, for three summers, I, I went to this, uh, this baseball camp. It was a strength and conditioning and skills camp. And you might be thinking, conditioning for baseball, you run in like 90-foot increments and then take a long break. But it is helpful to be in shape still. Um, but I, so I went, I went to this camp, and it was kind of an exclusive, invitation-only type camp. And so it felt like an honor to be there, but it was brutal. It was really brutal, and, and the coaches there seemed to take, like, real joy in punishing us. And every single morning, we would, we'd show up. It was a five-day-a-week for several weeks in the summer. We'd show up, and the first couple hours of every morning would be dedicated to uh, strength training and conditioning. And after we were dead tired, we'd move into skills work. And our coaches, again, loving to, to punish, uh, found ways to weave in conditioning our, uh, into our skills work. And there was one example of this that I really did not enjoy. And it took place during batting practice. Uh, so one of the hitting coaches really disliked it when people would pop the ball up. So a pop-up is just a really light fly ball, usually doesn't get out of the infield. It's an easy out uh, there's not really, it's, uh, it's an unproductive out. Coaches do not like to see pop-ups. So if anyone would hit a pop-up during batting practice, their punishment would be to have to go over to this exercise bike that our coach lovingly removed the seat from, and you would have to ride the exercise bike until somebody else hit a pop-up and would take your place. So you might be on the bike for 30 seconds, or you might be on the bike for 30 minutes. You had no idea. And the whole time you were on the bike, the, the coach would just kind of make his way over to you and increase the resistance on the bike. And he kept repeating the phrase that I have grown to despise. Uh, this phrase, which was his favorite, he would say, pain is just weakness leaving the body. Over and over and over again. Pain is just weakness leaving the body. It's like, I want to show you pain. Um, now, it's not a particularly sophisticated phrase. It's not, it's not nuanced. It's not very philosophical. However, our coach was using it to, commute, to communicate a greater point. He was trying to tell us that the pain that we were experiencing on the bike then and there was serving a purpose. Right? It was going to make us stronger. It was ultimately going to make us into better hitters. The affliction that we were experiencing in the moment would prepare us for something greater. Well, our text this morning, it comes from the prophet Malachi, who wrote these words in the mid-5th century BC. And he was looking forward to the day when the Lord himself would come and be with his people. And as we'll see as we dig deeper into this text, the fulfillment of that word was with Jesus, that his entering into the world on our behalf. But the Lord Jesus coming to us presents us with the problem, a problem that we see in Malachi's question in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when he appears? And why does Malachi ask this question? Well, he explains it in the very next sentence. He says, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. See, God is holy and we are not. In order to make us fit to stand before him, God does a work in us. He refines us. And how does he do so? Well, this passage tells us he does so with fire. It's not an easy process. It is often difficult and painful. But the pain isn't pointless. The pain is preparing us for something greater. And ultimately... This work, this refining that God does, it is evidence of his tremendous love for us. So we're going to look at this passage together, uh, Malachi 3, 1 through 4. And and from this passage, we're going to look at three main points. The coming refiner, the refiner's fire, and what the fire reveals. So first, the coming refiner. So before we get too deep into this text, I want to take a moment to to orient ourselves in it. So I already mentioned that this book was written by the prophet Malachi in the mid-5th century B.C. And Malachi was the last writing prophet of the Old Testament. And he was writing at a time when Israel had made its way back into the land. See, they had faced a period, at least in the southern kingdom, of 70 years of exile. So God had called them, he had rescued them out of Egypt, he allowed them to settle into the promised land, and he gave them a covenant, an agreement, and he promised, I will be your God and you will be my people if you uphold my statutes and my rules. And they didn't. And so God came down in judgment, and judgment came in the form of exile into a foreign land. So 70 years they spent in Babylon. Well, God in his grace allowed them to come back into the land, and one would think they learned their lesson, but not so much. And so Malachi is writing at a time when Israel, again, is back in the land, and they are falling into similar patterns of sinfulness, the sinfulness that led them into exile in the beginning. And the book of Malachi, it contains six disputes between God and his people. And these disputes follow a very defined pattern. The the prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord, issuing judgment and warning against his people. The people respond to God either defiantly or dejectedly. And then God counters their response with words of both comfort and confrontation. And this passage, Malachi 3, 1 through 4, is part of the fourth discourse. And here we see words both of comfort and of confrontation. And in verse 1, we are introduced to to three characters. There are three actors mentioned. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1 for us. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So three different people we're introduced to here, the first of which is the speaker. Uh, He says, behold, I send, and and the sender is identified at the end of verse 1. The sender is the Lord of hosts. And you might notice at the very end of verse 1, 
the identity of the Lord, it's, you see Lord in all caps here. And I know I've mentioned this in the past, but it's, it's worth repeating. When you see Lord in the Hebrew scriptures in all capital letters, that is a stand-in for God's covenant name, Yahweh. So the person doing the sending, the person speaking, the one from whom all of these declarations flow is the covenant God of Israel. It is Yahweh. It is God the Father. So that is our first character in this passage. The second individual we're introduced to here is the messenger who prepares the way. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And who is this? Well, the New Testament answers this question when it quotes this verse in a few different places in reference to John the Baptist, the one who prepares the way for Jesus. And we see this in Matthew 11.10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face will prepare your way before me. So these words are in Matthew, they're also in Mark and in Luke. And this messenger is identified later in the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, as Elijah, which is why Luke 117 tells us, and he will go before me, this is referring to John the Baptist, and he will go before, uh, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the, for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So we have our first and our second characters. And now we have our third. And the third person mentioned in this text is the Lord who will come. But this Lord is distinct from Yahweh who does the sending. And yet... He is also intimately identified with him. And we see this in, in two different ways, right? So the messenger is sent, and we see a, a transition from the first person to the second person, or excuse me, from the first person to the third person. It says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You see that transition? So God sends the messenger But the messenger comes to his temple, third person. So this messenger is distinct from Yahweh, yet is also said to be the owner of Yahweh's temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So who is this person? Well, this person has an extremely unique identity, whoever he is. Or for one thing, he's called the Lord. Well, Malachi wouldn't use that word to describe Elijah or John the Baptist. So this person, the person who's coming is someone who is greater than either of them. Another thing that points to his uniqueness is the fact that the temple, again, it belongs to him. Well, no one besides Yahweh is said to own the temple. And again, we, we see this transition. He is identified with God the Father and yet distinct from him. Well, I think the answer to this, we see the only person that this could possibly refer to is Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity. And you might be wondering, why is he belaboring this point? Well, <laughs> I'm a preacher and we belabor points. So for one thing, that's, that's part of just what we do. But additionally, I think it's often assumed that the only place where you see the doctrine of the Trinity come into play is in the New Testament. And it is true that it is defined much more clearly and explained much more vividly in the New Testament, but the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity is seen throughout the entire Bible in passages like this, 
When Jesus comes into the world and says, I was sent by the Father and I'm one with him, there was a solid foundation understanding of what that could mean. Someone who is identified with and yet distinct from the Father. So we see that throughout the Bible. This is not a New Testament uh, invention. And you might still be wondering, why does this matter? Well, again, the doctrine of the Trinity matters for, for a whole host of reasons, and, and I think we're going to have some, some time in upcoming text to unpack that a little further, but just one point to make on, on that question. The doctrine of the Trinity matters because we were made to know God and to be in relationship with Him. And part of that means knowing Him, knowing who He is, knowing details about Him and honoring Him in the way that He presents Himself. Imagine for a second that Someone came to you and, and said, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be your friend. You know, I think this is a little forward and a strange way to make that happen, but fine, yes, good, let's be friends. And then you begin to tell this person about yourself, details about your life, where you came from, and they stop you. say, no, 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 no. I just want to be in relationship with you. I don't want to get bogged down with the details. Well, that's not going to be much of a relationship, is it? It's so a part of knowing God, part of relating to Him, part of being in communion with Him is, is seeing Him as He is. So the ways that He reveals Himself, they matter. They should matter to us deeply. All right, so who is this coming Redeemer? Well, it is none other than Jesus Himself, the second person of the Trinity, one who is identified with God and yet distinct from Him. Well, how does he come? <laughs> what is the nature of his coming? Well, we, we learn about that in this next phrase, that Jesus comes like a refiner's fire. I'm going to read verse 2 for us once again. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. The day of Jesus' coming, it's experienced as both great and terrible. It is great because Jesus, one of the names attributed to him is Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. When Jesus comes to us, God himself is coming to us. And this, friends, is great news. Why? Because we were made for God. We were made to be in relationship with him. Our deepest longing is to know and be known by our God. And so when we see Jesus coming as God in the flesh, we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of our deepest longings to, again, be known and be, to, to know and be known by God, to, to have this intimate communion, a communion that was lost at the garden that we have been trying to restore ever since. So it is great for all of those reasons. But there's also a sense in which the day of the Lord will be terrible. Why? Again, because God is holy and we are not. The sad truth is that there's not a single person in this room who is able to stand on their own merits before God. None of us is righteous on our own. Regardless of outward appearance, regardless of title like pastor, None of us can stand when the Lord comes. Not one of us is righteous enough. 
Now, this is something that, that we all know innately, but often instead of, of facing that truth, we, we try to ignore it or we cover it up. You know, we, we become extremely busy. We throw ourselves into, into projects so that we don't have to be confronted with that reality. Or we erect other structures for diagnosing and dealing with the problem. Uh, there's an interesting example that I, uh, I, I uh, heard about uh, somewhat recently. Um, apparently, every single year, uh, there's a festival in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, in which people gather at this park. It's called Fort My, or excuse me, Fort Mercy Park, and they gather under a 50-foot puppet. It's a, a puppet named uh, Zazobra. And what people do at Fort Mercy Park under Zazobra is they'll take a piece of paper and they'll write out what they call their glooms. And glooms is a rather big term. It could refer to sad events from the last year. It could refer to different uh, disappointments, hard things. But it can also refer to, to personal failures or, in other words, sins. And people write down their glooms or they bring things to represent their glooms, things including legal documents. And uh, there's a story of a woman who had brought a wedding dress uh, after uh, her divorce had been finalized. And so these things are collected and they're placed in the puppet. And you know what happens? The puppet is lit on fire. Right? 50 foot marionette, Zobra, is burned to the ground. And I think it is really, really interesting that, that people are, are recognizing and doing this, that they're recognizing that there is something deeply wrong with the world and with themselves, and they're desperate for some sort of cleansing. And so they resort to burning in effigy. We know that there are impurities that need to be dealt with, but instead of burning effigies, the thing that we need is the refiner's fire. And this is what Jesus brings. See, in Matthew 3, we see these words from Malachi come to fruition over four centuries after they had been written. Again, the messenger sent to prepare the way for Jesus was John the Baptist. And he preached a message of repentance, knowing that the kingdom of God was at hand. And so in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 3, we are told that Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But John made clear that he was not the one in whom people ought to place their hope. Instead, he insisted, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When we see Jesus, he is like a refiner's fire. We saw that in his first coming, and we will see that all the more clearly when he comes again. And what exactly does that mean? Well, using the imagery of this passage, he talks about, the, uh, he talks about purifying silver and gold. Well, in order for silver and gold to be something of value, it needs to be refined. So it's subjected to intense heat where all of the dross and all the things that would diminish its purity are burned away. Uh, similarly, the other image is a fuller soap. Well, well, fuller soap, it's not like the soap that we use that didn't yet exist. Instead, it was a type of lye or alkali soap that was applied to cloths to, to sort of bleach them, uh, to whiten them. 
This is what we see expressed in these next few verses. In Malachi 3 and 4, we read, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. See, for us to be the people that God intends for us to be, in order for us to be the people that we want to be, certain things have to be done. Work needs to be done. We need to be purified. Now, notice that the picture here is of a refiner's fire, though. It's not of a forest fire. The desire is to cultivate and restore, to help, not to obliterate. And while the prospect is scary, fire is scary, it's the best thing for us. Uh, I listened to a story recently on, uh, on forest fires. It seems like a relevant, relevant topic living in Southern California. Um, but this was, uh, the story itself was uh, focused on a region in Montana where fire is part of just a natural part of the ecosystem. And apparently native populations who, who lived in that region had a practice of, of issuing controlled burns. And these burns would, would uh, make, make space for, for new life to spring forward and it also prevent massive wildfires because it would get rid of the fuel um, for those fires. But as European settlers came in and those peoples were, were pushed out, fire suppression sort of became the, the modus operandi. And this ended up being devastating for the region. One, because some of those native plants that needed, to be cle- that needed clearing in order to spring forth, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, continue to live. And then additionally, you had all of this fuel for when fires inevitably came through, massive wildfires would ensue. And it's interesting that in, uh, in the last few years, they've resorted back to some of those natural practices. And there's one native plant in particular that as soon as they had their first controlled burn, it's a plant called camas, uh, as soon as they had their first controlled burn, it just sprang forth in abundance. And that's the type of work that the refiner's fire does. It doesn't come and consume. It doesn't come and obliterate. Instead, it clears out the impurities so that new life can form. As I already mentioned, we were meant, we were made to be in relationship with God. And we were made to reflect Him. That's part of what it means to be made in his image, as Genesis 1.27 tells us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were meant to reflect the image of God back into the world that he made. But our sin, those impurities, they mar that image. They don't do away with it altogether, but they make it hard to see. But the work of the refiner helps to bring that out. As one commentator puts it, the beauty of this picture is that the refiner looks into the open furnace or pot and knows that the process of purifying is complete and all the dross burnt away when he can see his image plainly reflected in the molten metal. This work is hard. This work is often painful, but the pain has a purpose. It is truly the best thing for us. So think for a moment. 
Are there areas in your life that need to be exposed to the refiner's fire? Perhaps it's ways that you are thinking about in dealing with money. Maybe it's the ways that you talk to your spouse or your kids. Maybe it's the conduct that, your conduct at work or at school. Perhaps the ways in which you relate to food or to alcohol or to sex. Maybe you're harboring bitterness. You're carrying it around like a security blanket because often that, that feels more comfortable than actually forgiving. Friends, there is no area of our life that we ought to allow to be untouched by the refiner's fire. Giving up, I think, any of those things, it's, it's not easy. And it will likely feel like loss at first. But friends, again, this is the best thing for us. All right. Now let's look at what the fire reveals. Right, what does the refiner's fire reveal? Well, first, it reveals our sin. But more than that, the refiner's fire actually reveals the amazing love of our Father. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why does God work to refine you? Why does he engage in this difficult task? It's because of his great love for you. See, I think we often make the assumption that when we feel the Lord's rebuke, when we feel convicted by our sin, when we experience his discipline, we can think that God doesn't love us, that he's not for us, that, that he's abandoned us, but that is a dangerous and wrong-headed assumption. God's discipline, like that of a good father, is meant to restore, it's meant to refine, and it is evidence of love. How? God cares enough about you to deal with the sin that has the potential to wreck you. I listened to a story recently. Um, there's a, a young woman who uh, had never met her, her biological father, and uh, she began, she, she started out on this quest to, to discover who he is and, and to hopefully meet him one day. And as she was processing kind of her experience growing up and processing the idea of getting to meet her father, she began to, to ask questions about who he is and what he was like. And one of the things that she asked, and I thought this was really interesting and, and, and insightful, she asked whether or not her father would love her despite, because she associated love despite as the type of love that a father ought to give. And this is what she said. Like a, fa like a father, I wonder if he could love me despite, despite the fact that I could be a real know-it-all growing up, despite when I was eight and got mad at my brother and kicked him in the face, Despite the fact that I've cheated on a test, that I drake underage, that I'm a nervous driver and once I crashed my car and totaled it, I wonder if he could forgive me. Now, we may not be able to answer all of these questions in the affirmative about our earthly fathers, but friends, we can absolutely know with certainty that the love of our Heavenly Father is a love despite, that he sees our sin and loves us anyway. And his discipline, his refining work is actually evidence of that. See, God sees us honestly, which means that he's going to see the things that we don't like about ourselves. He's going to see all of the things that, that we're embarrassed about, that we try to cover up from other people. 
He sees all of the things, all of the places where we fall short. And it's from a place of love that the discipline, that the refining comes. See, if he didn't love us, he would just leave us to our own devices. But his love compels him to intervene. And what are God's feelings towards you as he is intervening, as he is refining you? Again, it's love. See, often when we're confronted with our sin, we begin to see it for what it really is in all of its ugliness. We lose heart. Right? We get discouraged. We, we get down on ourselves. We, we judge ourselves. And we begin to think that we are unlovable. But friends, we should not underestimate the incredible love and grace of God. A love which sent Jesus into the world. Jesus born in poverty in a manger who lived a humble life and faced the punishment that our sin actually deserves. Jesus was willing to face the fire of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. He allowed himself to be consumed by it so that we could be lovingly refined. Again, friends, God's refining is evidence of his love. You may want to beat yourself up about certain things, but God doesn't want to. The Puritan John Flavel once wrote, Remember that this God in whose hand are all creatures is your Father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. And this is true even in the midst of his refining work. Our son Oliver is three. He's going to be four next week. And uh, Kitty and I are, are, are doing a lot of refining um, in, in our parenting with him. My, my brother is a little bit older than me, and his, ki- his kids are kind of in the next stage, and he calls three-year-olds three-nagers, and uh, I, feel like, I feel like we've experienced some of that. Uh, so we're, we're regularly noticing behavior, trying to curb behavior, offering consequences that hopefully will help curb the behavior. But why do we do that? It's because we love Oliver. We love our kids. And I think there are, there, there are times where I've seen, you know, we, we issue a consequence and, um, you know, Oliver will, will get down on himself and, you know, he'll start, he'll say something to the effect of like, I'm never going to get good things or I'm never going to whatever. He's three, he has big feelings. But when I see that, like, it breaks my heart. It really does because, again, the consequence is not coming out of a, a place of, or a, a desire to be punitive. It's coming out of a desire to love him and not allow sort of the sins that we're seeing in germ form to, to take root. I, I want him to be able to understand the, the, the depth of my love, and he probably won't be able to until he has a kid of his own. But friends, this is what's happening when we experience the refining work of God, when we feel convicted about sin, when when we hear and we feel his rebuke. It's not coming from a place of, of, it's not punitive. It's, It's meant to be restorative. He wants to treat you more tenderly than you often want to treat yourself. Dane Ortland says that same thing in when he writes, Your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your heavenly Father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you are even capable of toward yourself. 
The heart of Christ is gentle and lowly. And that is the perfect picture of who the Father is. And Jesus assures us in John 16, 27, for the Father himself loves you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your refining work, even when it's hard. And God, we pray that you would help us to see it for what it is, evidence of your great love and your care. And so God, we pray some of the words that we just sang, that you would make us into who you want us to be. We know that that work often comes at a cost. We've grown to love a lot of the things that hurt us. But God, help us to seek you first. Help us to to know that you truly are the best thing for us. Help us to cling to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.